Hello and welcome to a new episode of Markets and Morality, our I show where we explore contradicting opinions within the classical liberal free market tent. I'm your host, Adam Bartha, the head of international outreach here at the IEA. Another week passed and another major own goal was scored by Putin himself. Both the Finnish and the Swedish governments handed in their application to join NATO, ending their decades-long military independence. But the question is, will NATO membership benefit the two Nordic countries, Europe or NATO itself? Or would it be better for European countries to search for alternative arrangements outside of the framework of NATO? In other words, should we classical liberals be supportive of NATO expansion? To discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome two prominent classical liberals to the show. First, welcome to Christopher Preble, who serves as the co-director of the New American Engagement Initiative at the Atlantic Council based in DC. Before joining the Atlantic Council, Chris was the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the prominent libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute. He was also commissioned officer in the US Navy and served abroad in the 90s, so Chris has both the practical and the theoretical experience when it comes to military missions. And I'm also very happy to welcome a longtime classical liberal friend, Emanuel Utrengen, who is the acting director of the Stockholm Free World Forum, which is a leading foreign policy and security policy oriented think tank based in Stockholm. Previously, Emanuel has been the program coordinator for welfare policy at Timbro, the IA's sister organization in Sweden, where he also worked on EU policy affairs. Emmanuel, Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Adam. Good to be here. Thank you. Let me start with you, Emmanuel. As this week, we have heard the news that your government officially handed in its application to join NATO. With your classical liberal hat on, what do you think of NATO in general, irrespective of the current situation with Russia? Do you think that NATO is a force for goods? Is it possible to protect liberal democracies through NATO? Um, and if so, should classical liberals like ourselves endorse NATO expansion? I think from a European perspective, NATO has definitely been a force for good. Uh, it may be different if you look at it from uh, an American uh, classical liberal or libertarian perspective, where, I mean, you can make a fair case that American taxpayers have subsidized the German welfare state, for example. Uh, but I would say that uh, if you are in uh, countries such as the Baltic countries, which are today some of the most uh, liberal or mar market liberal countries on earth, those countries would not have been, uh, they, they may have been under authoritarian control if it weren't for their NATO membership. Um, so, um, and, I, and I think from, um, from, from my perspective, the, the Swedish and Finnish, uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO will be good also for, for, for burden sharing in Europe. So it'll be easier for, uh, for other members of the alliance to coordinate their plans, uh, defense plans of the Baltics in particular. And uh, so I, I see this as something that it will be beneficial to, to NATO and to the alliance at large, uh, perhaps even more so than to, than to Sweden and Finland, actually. Mm. And Chris, a similar question to you. Do you think that NATO expansion is good, beneficial for Europe? Or do you think it would be better if some of the European countries would support a more strategic autonomy as the French president, for example, has been the proponent of this idea for a pretty long time? 
Right. I, I mean, I do think that that each country, you know, weighs this on a on a case by case basis, or at least should. I think one of the things that has happened in the successive rounds of NATO expansion is is here in the United States, there hasn't been enough thought given to sort of the practical effects of adding um, certain members along the way. And I think there is likely to be a a, uh, a bit of a discussion around that question with respect to Sweden and Finland, uh, where you didn't have it, for example, with respect to you know Montenegro or, or something like that, one of the other uh, recent additions to the alliance. But to me, the, the question comes back to how, uh, to, to, to Emmanuel's point about sort of burden sharing and how do you maximize uh, the security contributions that the beneficiaries to the alliance are making. And I think we've seen over the course of the NATO alliance um, a, uh, an uneven burden sharing, which at the early stage of the alliance was exactly the intention, right? American officials were actually quite explicit on this point, um, but we haven't seen a major shift uh, It'll be interesting to see if some of the recent uh, professions of wanting to increase military spending, most importantly by Germany, um, actually bear fruit. But the, but the simple fact is that the burden sharing problem is not a new one. And, um, and, and my, I, have, I think it's reasonable to ask whether or not this actually will be solved by the addition of two new members, even members that are exceptionally capable like Sweden and Finland are. But it's also a question how much do classical liberals think that this issue needs to be resolved? From an American taxpayer's perspective, sure, it might seem rather unfair that the US taxpayers are subsidizing essentially German taxpayers. But more from a geopolitical perspective, um, do you think that the fact that Europe has been a part of NATO, even if they were not willing to pay their fair share, do you think this has benefited in the United States in some regards? Well, I'll take that. I mean, I think that if that that is certainly one of the factors that explains uh, peace and security in Europe since the end of the Second World War, but it's certainly not the only factor. Um, I still believe that the most important factor was the realization on the part of most Europeans and, and European state leaders that war did not serve their interests. So it wasn't like they needed to be pulled together, uh, you know, into an alliance to convince them that World War I and World War II were horrific affairs that they didn't want to repeat. Mm. So another factor, of course, is a greater uh, political and economic integration through the European Union. The European Union has uh, a nominal security component, but one that has never really or, or very rarely been, been engaged because I think there's an understanding that NATO sort of covers the security part of the European security problem. And again, I think that's a question worth exploring, whether or not that's the only alternative is to have that bifurcation between a political union on one side and a security union on the other that are separate, separate organizations. Sure. Um, Emmanuel, I would want to come back to you for a bit, because under the current circumstances, feeling the pressure of the Russian expansionist neo-imperialist foreign policy, it seems quite understandable to me why Sweden and Finland has decided to join NATO. But if the whole conversation about NATO expansion happened a decade earlier, before the Crimean takeover, or even before the Georgian war in 2008, do you think you would have supported NATO expansion even then? What, what would have been the added benefit of having Sweden and Finland part of the security alliance, 
if the Russian threat is not as obvious or not clearly there. Well, if, if, it, if, it's, uh, if it's expansion and we're talking about Sweden and Finland, I think the benefits then would have been pretty much the same as they, as they are now. If you want to defend the Baltic states, access to Swedish territory is a necessary component of any such defense plan. Uh, and especially Gotland, the island, the main island of the, of the Baltic Sea would be important in that respect. So, um, so that benefit still stands. And Sweden has, for example, the, the largest air force in Northern Europe, uh, some of them, one of the most capable navies. I think Sweden and Germany are the only countries with submarines, for example, except Russia, of course. So, um, so, so that, those benefits would, would have been pretty much the same from a sort of a military strategic perspective. And uh, would it have been, you know, uh, more more uh, acute? Probably, probably not. I think what's interesting uh, from to follow from from this part of the world is that uh, especially the Finns have have come around. The Finns for a long time have been, you know, they haven't been appeasers maybe as the Germans have, but they've always had this uh, idea that you know we. Russia is a problem that we cannot solve. We just have to deal with it because we share this long border with Russia. So they they have always been keen on on talking to the Russians, trading with the Russians, and, and having exchange whenever that is possible. Uh, and Saulinius, the current Finnish president, who's been in office for almost ten years now and is a very seasoned uh, diplomat and politician, uh, he he's spoken to Putin uh, a lot over the years, and he's uh, it's uh, said that he's the European leader that Putin respects the most. But he has said uh, as recently as uh, the press conference where Finland announced that it would apply for NATO membership, that uh, he detected a shift in Putin's rhetoric in the last year or so. He thinks that Putin has now you know, crossed Rubicon, to use an expression that's common in, in, in the US. And, uh, and I think that, that, that the Finns they, they know Russia better than almost any European nation does. And if they say that things have changed, that the calculus is different this time around, I think that is an assessment that needs to be taken very, very seriously. Um, so, and, and uh, just to add that to the record, I think that Sweden would not have shifted its stance if Finland had not done so. Uh, it's always been one of the main, if not the main argument against NATO membership in Sweden has been that that would essentially move the Iron Curtain, or during the Cold War, it would have moved the Iron Curtain all the way to the Swedish-Finnish border. Uh, mm. And uh, and if we would not have joined NATO now, and Finland would have, then Sweden would have been the only non-NATO country in the Baltic Sea region except Russia, and that would have left us in a very vulnerable position. So, so I think if you want to understand what's happened in the past few weeks, you need to look at the, the Finnish leading politicians and the President Nienista in particular, and look at their experience with Russia. And their experience with Russia has been that dialogue, diplomacy has worked up until a few months ago, but now things have changed and mm. they have had to change accordingly. And does the same argument that you're using for the Baltics stack up when we're talking about the Balkans? So for example, it has been quite discussed that it would be the goal of NATO to expand further in the Balkans region. Um, but is that a realistic goal to have? Uh, having Montenegro in the alliance is something different than having Serbia in the alliance, for example. So um, we know very well that Putin has been meddling in Bosnia, um, is trying to search for some strategic alliances within the Serbian populist government as well. Um, so what, what are the actual limits of NATO membership? Should the goal of classical liberals be 
that we include every single European country in NATO, or are there certain limits where it's worth not trying to poke the Russian bear further? I mean, I, I don't think we need to view this in terms of poking the Russian bear or not, but I do think that that uh, one of your your uh, original questions that you sent us was that if if the protection or or export uh, even exporting of liberal democracies is a goal for NATO, and I think protection yes, but exporting no, I don't think that's something that NATO can can reasonably accomplish. And uh, for that reason, I do think that it's different when you talk about NATO accession of, of Sweden or Finland or Montenegro or or North Macedonia, for example, because. Sweden and Finland are solid liberal democracies, and the best thing that that uh, we can contribute to the alliance is the protection of other solid liberal democracies in our neighborhood, such as the Baltic states. Uh, but you know, NATO is, an, is a is a defensive alliance, and, and exporting liberal democracy democracies would probably mean you know uh, using force in a in a very different way than that. So. Uh, so I wouldn't say that that uh, I, I would say that it is different, including Sweden and Finland versus uh, countries where which are in more unstable neighborhoods and with more unstable regimes. Chris, what are your thoughts well, on the Balkans? Well, I, I think I, I think Emmanuel framed it very well, which is that, uh, you know, protecting yes, exporting no. But 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 then for classical liberals, the question is, what what are the best vehicles for expanding uh, liberalism and and free markets, um, and here again, I think you have other institutions that are not necessarily security institutions. Even if it's not the European Union, even if it's a trade union, even if it's facilitate you know greater trade, the facilitating trade between different member states, making it easier for civil society organizations to connect and work together. Um, that that can occur and does occur completely independent of a, of a security alliance. NATO doesn't make it possible for um, you know trade in goods or or the exchange of ideas, right? That's that I, I do think that we've lost sight from time to time of NATO as first and foremost a security alliance. And to be clear, a security alliance that was created to deal with the Soviet Union and the Red Army lodged in Eastern Europe and a, a security alliance today that is mostly focused on the threat posed by Russia, but one that some in the United States, in fact, many in the United States, imagine as also being a useful vehicle for confronting and containing uh, a rising China. So again, we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget the fact that NATO has many security goals uh, besides just Russia. And I think that's a particular concern to, to aspiring new uh, NATO member states, um, you know, not losing sight of the fact that the United States in particular might have other, uh, other goals in mind besides just uh, facing down Russian aggression. True. I mean, if NATO is just a security alliance, then I guess it's not that problematic to have Turkey as a member, for example. Well, that's my, yeah, but that's my if if NATO is something more, if it's a value-based organization that wants to support liberal democratic institutional structures, then having Turkey is definitely a problem. And having also EU member states that are going down a more authoritarian rule, like right. Hungary or even Poland, uh, right. could turn out to be a problem. So right. do we classical yeah. liberals kind of need to decide whether we just accept NATO as a security umbrella? Or do we are we a bit more optimistic and say that, okay, it has a deeper value and deeper meaning and supporting 
classical liberal or at least liberal institutional democratic structures? I mean, I, I think Adam, we need to remember the history of this organization. So while, while Turkey certainly is now a questionable or problematic uh, democracy, to say the least, um, this is not the first time. In fact, you could argue that, that Erdogan's government is certainly more democratic than some of the military governments that ruled even as Turkey was, um, or you know, military dominant uh, governments. Um, Greece, uh, of course, was for a time also a military government. When Portugal was admitted to the alliance, it was a dictatorship, not a democracy. So, so, so this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, what I think you can see on, on multiple occasions, and again, this, this to me reveals the reality of NATO, that while we, we speak about NATO as being primarily about the protection of liberal democracy, as a practical matter, it has made a number of compromises on that question over the years in the service of security, first and foremost. Yeah, so I, how can how far can we go with these compromises, Emmanuel? Yeah, I, I, I would just add to that, that, you know, uh, all, all of these countries, uh, Tur Turkey, for example, uh, and, and Portugal is, is another good example, have been have been added for maybe for more geostrategic reasons. But I think that uh, just as with Hungary being a member of the EU, the question is, would it have been better off from a liberal point of view if it would have been out of the EU or would it would it have been closer to actors such as Russia uh, and uh, I think that those are really hard questions to to grapple with I, I think about you know Hungary's position in the EU quite frequently in in my in my current role and I spoke to EU commissioner Didier Reinders who works a lot on the rule of law issues a couple of weeks ago and it's a hard it's a hard problem and it's the same goes for for turkey turkey and nato it's not it, it's it, there's always going to be tensions and sources of conflict which sweden has had to experience in the, in the last week with uh, erdogan uh, trying to block swedish uh, nato accession and finish as well but i think that um, again it's not a satisfying answer to that question but i think that by the end of the day uh, if, if Turkey and Hungary were not in those institutions, the situation in those countries would probably be even worse. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument to make. Uh, but, but sticking to what you have mentioned about Erdogan's veto, uh, what do you think about that? Uh, do you think that there is a deeper meaning and a deeper goal that he tries to achieve? Or is it just a price that he wants to extract and he feels that, okay, the United States, in order to let Sweden and Finland in, would give them more military aid or would give them some special favors? Well, what do you think the threat of the veto was about? Well, I, I'm no Turkey expert myself, but I've, I've listened to a few and talked to a few this week. And, and most of them have agreed that this is not as much about Sweden and Finland. It's not about Finland at all, I would say. Uh, it, it's mostly, mostly about Sweden and even more so maybe about the United States. Uh, and apparently Erdogan has, has complained publicly that he hasn't received a lot of attention from President Biden. Uh, Biden hasn't spoken to him, given him a call. Uh, and uh, so, so it may, may have, have got something to do with that and with those uh, F-35 fighter jets that he, he wants to buy. Uh, there probably will be some negotiating uh, and primarily between Sweden and Finland and, and Turkey. I know that there's a delegation going there next week. So we'll see then if, if this is uh, to be taken uh, with, you know, to what extent this is serious and credible and directed against Sweden and Finland, or if it's about something else. My guess is that this is part of, of a negotiation and, and Erdogan has obviously done this before such as when he blocked the defense plans for uh, for Poland and the Baltics uh, one or two years ago in, in NATO. And eventually he 
he received some sort of concession and and removed his veto. So, so I think this this is just a part of a negotiating strategy. I would say. Chris, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Erdogan is, has demonstrated on many occasions his ability to extract concessions. He also did it with respect to Syrian refugees with the EU. So, I mean, I I, I think that that he recognizes that he is in a a strong position to extract concessions. I I, I sort of wish he, that he would rethink the F thirty five decision because maybe maybe that's not necessarily even in Turkey's best interest. But again, but again, the it, I think it does speak to a broader issue, which is NATO as an organization operates by consensus. And, and the addition of, addition of new members, more nations equals more interests. Now, we believe that the common interests over, you know, supersede those individual national interests, but they will not always. And so then uh, as a body, as an as a, as a alliance that has continued to grow and added more members since the end of the Cold War than were added during the Cold War, as those new members are added, how will the alliance deal with the, the outliers? How will the alliance deal with those who maybe it won't be Erdogan next time? Maybe it'll be Orban. Maybe it'll be, you know, maybe it'll be Italy. Maybe it'll be Spain. You know, so, so imagine future scenarios where, where leaders are using this uh, to their benefit to extract concessions. Before the whole Russian crisis erupted, there was a lot of talk in Brussels about the defense union and a more military cooperation between EU member states. And that was not necessarily directed against NATO, but a lot of the classical liberals supported it because they thought NATO was a bit too interventionist, especially in the Middle Eastern region. And maybe if Europe has its own military capabilities, it would be less forced to engage in these interventionist endeavors approach. Um, do you think that would have been a nice alternate universe to establish a military for the EU, which would have been in very close alliance uh, with, with the United States, presumably, but not operate within the NATO framework? Emmanuel, what do you think about this alternative universe? I, I think the, the, the issue that I've always had with uh, these defense plans within the EU is that we already have NATO in a sense. So we need to figure out, you know, what, what role should the EU have and what role should, should NATO have? Because obviously, and now, especially with the addition of Sweden and Finland, almost all EU countries are going to be part of NATO. So, uh, and, and uh, it, it was interesting being in Helsinki a few months ago because the Finns have been better, I think, than the Swedes of thinking about, you know, uh, the EU's role in, in when it comes to defense policy. And, and they've obviously, this has been part of, of the, the Finnish uh, government inquiry into their various uh, defense, defense agreements and, and the, the one that advocated eventually for, for NATO membership. And their view was that we've we've tried this track, you know, for a number of years. For example, when Finland was the uh, chair of the EU Council presidency in 2019, they tried to clarify what does Article 42.7, the mutual protection clause in, in in the Lisbon Treaty, what does it actually mean? What does it entail? But no one except France was really interested in it. Uh, and uh, what has become clear in the last few years, I think, is that. Where, where you can see some action happening in, uh, in, in the EU when it comes to defense policy is, uh, is in uh, you know, research and development projects and, and maybe procurement in the future, who knows. But when it comes to you know, defense planning, uh, the EU has still got a long way to go and NATO is way ahead. And that's why Sweden and Finland are joining now because we can see that even though 
Sweden and Finland have taken part in NATO exercises for, for a number of years, we still don't, we're not part of that operative you know, planning and uh, we're not in the nuclear planning group, for example. Uh, we're not in, uh, we, we, we're not involved in the defense plans of the Baltics, although Swedish and Finnish territory would probably be necessary to, to accomplish that, that kind of defense. So um, it, I, I think that, that you can do both. And I think that, that uh, adding Sweden and Finland to, to NATO would be good for Europe. I also think that more, more defense policy at the EU level would probably be good for Europe. So those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but it, it seems to me that the EU is, is behind and that's something that uh, the Finns in particular have realized in the last couple of months. Sure. What about you, Chris? Would you actually support more EU involvement in military and defense policy? I would support more EU involvement. I would support more uh, uh, multi other multilateral security arrangements on an ad hoc basis even. I mean, again, I think this comes down to resiliency and, and hedging. Um, you know, not so long ago, the United States of America uh, elected a president who spoke openly of the Article 5 commitment being uh, negotiable. And, and I don't think it was that hard to imagine um, him um, you know, not wishing to fulfill that for various leaders of European countries that didn't want to name a base after him or give a loan to his family company or you know, allow a hotel to be built someplace. You know, we saw how Donald Trump used his office to extract concessions for him personally. And so that he is a unique character in that respect, but, but his election proved, uh, as with any democracy, that, uh, that things happen, right? And in demo you know, liberals, li liberals believe in democracy. We believe that the people have a vote. Uh, and so we've, we've seen the, the possibility of, of this. And so the fact that NATO is so overwhelmingly dependent still on the United States uh, to me sort of calls into question, um, you know, what is the alternative universe? You framed it, Adam. What are the alternatives that are open to European states if in the future, um, the, you know, uh, something, someone like a Trump emerges who is actually capable of carrying out his threats? Well, hopefully we're going to not have to prepare for the worst, but it's always beneficial to do so. Um, just a last question to both of you. If you had to predict the future of NATO, A, do you think it's going to be around in 20 years time? And B, if it's going to be around, then how many members is it going to have? How far should we go with the expansion? And is that a rather beneficial thing to do? Chris, you talked about, you know, unilateral decisions being taken and becoming more and more difficult the more members we have. So, Emmanuel, first, what's your prediction on the future of NATO? Uh, well, that's hard. Um, I don't, I mean, if you would have asked me a few months ago, I would have said that NATO wouldn't expand and that it's, it may have still been around, but that it would have been less and less relevant. Uh, but that was before the war in Ukraine. Uh, now I think that NATO will probably still be around in 20 years, but I'm not sure that it would add any new members. Uh, it seems to me that the countries that may want to come in at the moment are, are not uh, exactly 
easy numbers to to integrate uh, compared to Sweden and Finland, say. Um, if, if you would have asked about the, the EU instead, I think that it may, may be different. And I actually hope that that Sweden, uh, which will have the EU uh, Council presidency uh, next year, will push for, for uh, an expansion of the EU in, in due course. And it may, may take a few years, but countries that may be hard to add to NATO, such as Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, may, I think, and should perhaps in the future be added to the, to the EU instead. Um, so, uh, but in 20 years, uh, who knows, but it will probably still be around, but I I'm not sure it'll have any new members. Sure, that makes sense. Chris, what is your prediction for the future of NATO? I mean, I think that it will it will likely exist and continue to exist as a as a coordinating mechanism. Um, again, we will we will see the Article Five commitment tested, or we hope that it never is. But this is the thing: is I think I think what NATO has to deal with is how traditional forms of aggression, which were very obviously would have been implicated under Article Five. How does it deal with cyber attacks? How does it deal with, with uh, trade wars and other forms of coercion um, that, are, that do not look like a Russian invasion of uh, an, a sovereign neighbor? And I think that's the key for the alliance. If it wants to maintain its relevance going forward, it needs to clarify uh, where, where those security commitments are engaged. Well, Chris, Emmanuel, thank you so much for a great discussion. And thank you to our dear audience for joining as well. If you're interested in continuing the debate, then do share your thoughts below this video or make sure to follow IE London on Twitter. I also want to extend my special thanks to our donors, without whom our work at the IE would not be possible. If you do wish to contribute and support our work, please do consider subscribing to our IE Patreon account, where you can receive some exclusive content and have a sneak peek into behind the scenes as well. But for now, thank you for joining, and I hope to see you in two weeks' time again.